intellectuals, the philosophers of the day, met to talk about the big ideas of their day. When the big thinkers of Athens heard Paul speak of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear more from you about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. After this, Dr. Luke writes, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Such was Paul's method of evangelism, persistently declaring the matter of first importance, that the Christ was Jesus. God, the anointed one, saves sinners. Over threats from some of the local Jews, Paul declared again and again the truth about Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, ears were opened, hearts were changed, and a church was born at Corinth. Some three years later, Paul heard there was trouble at Corinth. And it wasn't the first time. This time, the people were divided over spiritual hobby horses. Blatant sexual immorality was accepted in the church. Lawsuits that should have been handled within the family of God were brought before pagan judges who were of no account in the church. A laundry list of sin and separation had fractured the bonds of Jesus' love within the fellowship. But the root of the sin that threatened to blow up the whole church was the fact that many had departed from the truth about Jesus. Some at Corinth were denying the bodily resurrection of the dead. The big thinkers at Athens mocked when Paul told the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what that means for every man and woman. So do the big thinkers on the little hills in our culture, government, the media, Facebook, Twitter. So do many of the so-called big thinkers in Christian universities and seminaries. So, what are the big ideas that occupy your mind lately? Who are you listening to? Who or what is of first importance to you right now? Let that simmer in your heart. As we occupy our minds with God's word, always the matter of first importance to the Apostle Paul. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. In your pew Bible, if I've got the page right, should be 961. Amen, it is. We'll occupy our minds with the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, 
than to the 12. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for preserving for us your holy word. Please help us to see what Paul wanted the beloved church family at Corinth to see. Holy Spirit, please help everyone see the truth about Jesus as of first importance for every person of every age, always, everywhere, and in everything, so that each one will know and live according to what is true, that the Christ is Jesus. May every heart be made new by the unchangeable word of your inexhaustible love and power, almighty God. Amen. We begin with the urgency of the truth about Jesus. Verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The church at Corinth is in serious trouble. Look ahead in your Bible to verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is Paul's tone at the beginning of chapter 15. So verse 1 is no gentle reminder. God's grace is overflowing Paul's heart with reproving love for his brothers and sisters in Christ who are mishandling the truth about Jesus. And there is nothing more dangerous for any man or woman. Look again at verses 1 and 2. As Paul gives us the anatomy of faith. Brothers, I declare again unto you the good news, the truth about Jesus, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here we see five right responses to the truth about Jesus. First right response, the gospel must be received. Not rejected, ignored, doubted or despised. This good news is not fake news. Man's capacity for fiction has nothing to do with it. There were too many witnesses of the truth about Jesus, as we'll see, and one of them cannot lie. Man's effort has nothing to do with it. This gospel came from way beyond man's reach. John 1, 9 through 13 tells us that Jesus, the true light, which gives light to everyone, came into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, as his, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And if you don't receive him, you're not born of him, and you remain dead in your sins. Therefore, this gospel cannot be considered inconsequential, nor can it be discounted 
discarded or laid aside on the back burner of your life. The truth about Jesus must be welcomed. It must be accepted. This gospel must be received. Which brings us to our second right response to the truth about Jesus. Those who receive this gospel must also stand in it. See if this matches your experience. As you accept the truth about Jesus, you see that every man and woman is meant to build his or her life upon him. All other ground is sinking sand. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in verse 311 of this very letter. One who trusts in Jesus stakes his life on the truth of the gospel. He lives by it, takes refuge in it. He stands firm in it because the unrighteous cannot stand in the white-hot, pure presence of the anger of a holy God. Therefore, the man or woman who has received the gospel entrusts his or her life for all eternity to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Dear church family, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Oh, yes, the one who receives the gospel stands in the truth about Jesus which brings us to our third right response to the truth about Jesus. The one who stands in the truth about Jesus is being saved. How is being saved a response to the truth about Jesus? Look to Exodus 14, 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Bible says that's man's role in being saved. Fear not. Stand firm. See. Be silent. Be still. Do nothing. Realize you can't save yourself. Making a case for your own moral worthiness in the courtroom of a holy God is a fool's errand. Not a single one of us can stand in that judgment, for it is appointed for fallen man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27 People, our debts are too great. Our crimes too serious. We are guilty. And we cannot pay we cannot save ourselves from the consequences of our rebellion against the one who formed us and made us for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7. You know this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. You can't fix that by your own effort. 
religion can't save you. Your life will never be good enough to earn your way into heaven. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. If you think otherwise, let's talk. We love you enough to show you the truth. Every single man and woman on planet Earth needs immediate rescue. Hebrews 10.31 tells us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in his righteous wrath against the heinous evil of our sin. Yet, in his steadfast love, God sent his beloved son to stand in your place. See the truth about Jesus today. Stand firm in the truth about Jesus the rest of your life. Fear not. Trust in the finished work of salvation Jesus accomplished for you on his cross. And be saved. And be kept safe. Believers, are you still sinning? Even as you are being made more like Jesus, at the same time, do you still find yourself still being a sinner? No matter how hard you try. Listen to Paul. In Romans 7, 21 through 25, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Even as we stand in the gospel we've received, even as we pursue holiness, sin is still at work within us. But God's sustaining grace is ongoing even as we stumble. So draw near. Praise God for the truth about Jesus. By the grace of God through faith in Christ and not our works, we are being saved. Which brings us to the fourth right response to the truth about Jesus. All who are being saved must hold fast to the word Paul preached. Look again at the end of verse 2. You'll see if and unless there. Scary. That gets our attention. If we are being saved, we must hold fast to the word Paul preached. Resurrection included. The Greek word for hold fast here means to bind, arrest, take possession of, lay hold of. So we can rightly say that Paul exhorts believers at Corinth to arrest themselves, to bind themselves to Christ, take possession of the gospel, to lay hold of the truth about Jesus, to treasure the gospel and keep it intact. But some in Corinth have let go the truth of the resurrection, taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the big thinkers on the little hills of their culture. Some in the congregation at Corinth are holding on to the big idea of the Greeks that death forever frees the human soul from a wretched human body. This is the Corinthian heresy, and it's still taught in churches today. The Bible teaches that our fallen sinful nature is our great problem, 
Not that the physical body is the seat of our wickedness or the source of our suffering. As Charles Ellicott writes in his commentary on Colossians 2.11, the body itself is not put off, for it is not evil. It is a part of the true man and becomes the temple of God. How many of you went to church for years thinking that your eternity was to float around in heaven as a disembodied spirit, spirit, free at last from the prison of your physical body? Brothers and sisters, the intermediate state is not our eternity. Praise God. We must understand that just as Jesus was raised from the dead in a glorified body, both spiritual and physical in nature, so shall all believers be raised at the last day to be like him forever, with him forever, perfected in love and glory forever in the new heavens and the new earth. That is our great hope. Look at verse 13. So strong is our union in Christ that Paul writes, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Look at verse 17. This is Paul's warning. A mangled gospel is no gospel at all. No good news. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished eternally. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's the truth about Jesus. He is the first among many brothers and sisters to be raised from the dead. You are being saved to be resurrected at the last day, redeemed soul and glorified body. If you hold fast to the word Paul preached, unless you believed in vain. And here is a fifth right response to the truth about Jesus. But what does Paul mean? Unless you believed in vain? The comment in my study Bible for this phrase says, quote, denying the resurrection of Christ makes our profession of faith useless. Absolutely terrifyingly right. But does that capture Paul's meaning in this verse? I think Paul's pressing something far deeper here. Holman Christian Standard Bible and Lexham English Bible have the end of verse 2, unless you believed to no purpose. Well, that better fits the context, both in Greek and in English. The pulpit commentary sees it this way. Ye have believed to no purpose without effect. In this case, the Corinthians would have received the seed in stony places. Given the condition of the church at Corinth, it seems more so that the seed was sown among thorns. Which brings us to Jesus, preaching in Matthew 13. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown among thorns... This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. 
As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. Jesus preached that the one who truly hears and understands the word of the kingdom bears fruit. True grace will always prove itself in faith and works. Not works as a way to earn God's favor, but as evidence, his irresistible loving favor is at work in you and in me. The crowning work of our transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel is to instill steadfast love for God in the heart of everyone who believes. It's what we're being remade for. So here at the end of verse 2, Paul is looking for people who glorify God, who enjoy Him and love Him with everything we are and everything we have and to love others as Christ has loved us. Paul is telling the church at Corinth that to believe in vain, to believe to no purpose, is to believe without effect, without a loving response to the greatest expression of love in all eternity, throughout the universe, the voluntary suffering and death of Christ on the cross for us. Paul is so concerned about the state of the heart within the church at Corinth that he ends this epistle in his own hand with this warning. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Loving means serving. Fruit-bearing is essential to the anatomy of saving faith. But as we've already learned... Some at Corinth were fruitless, squabbling over lesser things. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches were choking the word of the king. And it wasn't because Paul had not preached the truth in a memorable way. Look again at our passage. Verses 3 through 5 comprise the earliest Christian creed in the Bible. Paul received it sometime after the risen Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road, as he mentions in verse 8, if you look a little bit ahead. You can read all about the day Paul met Jesus in Acts 9. But think for a moment. Paul delivered this creed to the church of Corinth as of first importance. Therefore, this creed certainly agrees with what Jesus told Paul about himself face to face. And even atheist scholars agree this creed was circulated within the early church within the first two or three years of the crucifixion of Christ. Too early to be legend and far too powerful to be forgot. These are the facts about Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, and what that means for all men and women, you and me. There is nothing more important Starting at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
Here we have the essential content of the truth about Jesus. Delivered as of first importance by God through Paul, the principal writer of the New Testament, a man once violently opposed to Jesus who died defending the truth about Jesus, that Christ died for our sins. The gospel is the royal proclamation of the virgin-born arrival of God, our Savior King, crucified and raised from the dead for us. The best news to those who will receive him, stand in him, hold fast to him, and be saved by him. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7 Look to the cross. Every eye, look to the cross. You'll have to turn from the sin in your life and from your efforts to earn God's favor if you are to see the salvation the Lord worked for us there. See a man hanging there, nails driven through his wrists and ankles, blood everywhere. His appearance so marred, beaten, bruised, bloodied, disfigured beyond human semblance, as according to Isaiah 52. You see the crack on the cross piece on the left side, my right? That should never be repaired. Be reminded of jagged wood tearing flesh from Jesus' bleeding body as he struggled to lift himself to take every breath. Hear his gasps. That physical torment was nothing compared to the agony he suffered as he bore the wrath of God for us. Thousands and thousands were crucified under Roman tyranny. But only one is remembered. Jesus. If you don't know him as your savior, you need to think about that a long while. Why that is. And it matters that he died in this way. Suffering on our behalf. Hanging on a wooden cross. Galatians 3, 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 1 Peter 2, 24. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us why Jesus had to go all the way to death in this way. Lord's Day 15 and 16. This death convinces me that he shouldered the curse which lay on me, since death by crucifixion was accursed by God. God's justice and truth demand it. Only the death of God's Son could pay for our sin. God's eternal Son, by whom and through whom all things were created, the Messiah yearned for by God's people for centuries, 
one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, sacrificed himself in our place to deliver us from God's righteous wrath and eternal punishment, the just consequences of our sins. So, here at the cross, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Psalm 85.10. What other motivation could there be for the Lord Jesus in control of all things to willingly endure the horror of the cross if not his inexhaustible love for us who believe? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believeth on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Look at the cross. See the everlasting king of first importance, shedding the blood of first importance, dying to save his people from our problem of first importance. Look again at verse 3. In accordance with the scriptures, New Testament wasn't written yet, Paul's star witness to the truth about Jesus dying for our sins is the Old Testament. God's word is always the witness of first importance. God published the truth about Jesus centuries before he came to die. Only God can do that. And he put it in print for all men and women to see that he keeps his promises. Genesis 3, 5. The Lord God said to the serpent, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That happened at the cross. So by teaching the Corinthians this early creed, Paul is still occupied with the word, testifying that the Christ, the Messiah promised way back in Genesis 3, was Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5, written 700 years before Christ came to die so that we might be saved. Look at verse 4 of our passage. And he was buried. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Isaiah 53, 9. Innocent Jesus died alongside two thieves and was buried in a rich man's tomb. You can read all about that in Dr. Luke's gospel account, Luke 23. And Jesus didn't just pass out and wake up. The idea that medicine at the time was so primitive that people were mistaken that Jesus was dead is just chronological snobbery. The Romans knew a dead man when they saw one. They were the most efficient killers of their time. They knew dead people. And if you've ever held the hand of someone you love as they breathe their last breath, you'll stop holding on to the ridiculous idea 
that the men and women who loved Jesus sealed his body in that tomb by mistake. Jesus was buried because he was certainly dead. So when they placed Jesus' dead body in the rich man's tomb, it became the burial of first importance. Precisely because three days later, later, that tomb was of no importance. Not to the disciples. They placed no altar there, no shrine. If you doubt the truth about Jesus, you need to think about that for a good long while. It's because his body isn't there. Verse 4. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Amen? Amen. If you leave this church with no other recollection of this poor preacher's sermon, drill this into your mind. God raised Jesus from the dead. Amen? Amen? This is of first importance. If Jesus were not raised from the dead, his name would be forgotten along with Everyone else, the Romans crucified. You and I wouldn't be here this morning. We'd be somewhere else. And we'd be hopeless. But we're here in church because Christ is risen. We don't want to be anywhere else because He is our hope. Listen, to be raised, He had to have been dead. To die, he had to have lived. To live, he had to be born as a man. And to be born of a virgin, he must be God. And to save sinners, he had to be God and man. And he had to be one who, again, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15. The word made flesh had to live the life of first importance and die to ransom us from our futile way of life with his precious blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 1 Peter 1.18 The sacrifice of first importance to which all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed. The sacrifice of first importance to everyone who believes. And our faith will be counted as righteousness to us who believe in him who was who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification Romans 4:24 our justification is made complete by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he had to be raised on the third day to be in accordance with the scriptures. Matthew 12, 40. Jesus explains how Jonah foretold the resurrection of Christ. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Isaiah 53, 10 also foretold that Christ would be raised. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for our guilt, He shall see his offspring. That's us. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus lives 
forevermore. He shall prolong his days. He sees his offspring, us, and cares for us. The great shepherd watching over us from his mighty throne at the right hand of the Father now. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. And 500 years before Jesus was raised, God foretold the bodily resurrections of the redeemed and of the reprobate. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Think about that. Everlasting life or everlasting contempt. Nothing on earth or in heaven could possibly be of greater importance than the truth about Jesus. Look at your Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Are you longing for the return of the everlasting king? I am. He's coming to reign forevermore with a resurrected people, fully transformed into his likeness. I can't wait. If you belong to him, Jesus' resurrection will change everything about you. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 17. First, by his resurrection, Christ has overcome death so that he might make you share in the righteousness he won for you by his death. Look again at your Bible. You might have to turn the page. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, which we can't obey perfectly. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war is won. If you belong to Christ, death merely puts an end to your sinning and ushers you into his presence in peace with Jesus forevermore. Are you thankful this Thanksgiving that Christ was raised? Second, by his power, we too are already now resurrected to a new life. Look forward to this as Rob leads us through Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died with Christ. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Are you seeking the things that are above where Christ is? Third, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee of our glorious resurrection. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Are you living a resurrected new life, looking forward to a glorious new body like his? Is your citizenship in heaven as a subject of the risen king of first importance to you? Look once more to our passage this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5. Here we see the truth about Jesus applied in the lives of those who love him. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. I've heard it said that there are no apologetics in the Bible. I don't know if Ben, ben Blower is here or not, but if, if ever there was a significant proof text, this is certainly one. The risen Christ met and spoke and shared meals with Peter and the other apostles. In fact, they wrote about these times themselves in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 and 21. Read them today. Be reminded that the gospel is historically true. Many eyewitnesses to the facts about Jesus were alive at the time Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. If you look over to verse 6, you see that doubters could talk to people who were there when the risen Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most likely in Galilee. It would have been risky to be there with Jesus that day in Galilee, even riskier at the time Paul wrote this letter to be talking about it. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you really need to think about that. Why that is, and know this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In accordance with the scriptures, Romans 10, 9. But beyond his apologetic purpose, I think Paul is after something deeper. Read on to the end of 1 Corinthians 15 this afternoon. That's two assignments. And you'll find that what I'm saying is true. He's calling us to the way the apostles were living at the time. Joyfully serving and tirelessly working at great personal risk for the love of Christ and the glory of God. It's what we're being remade for. Follow the risen Jesus and he will change everything about you. In Cephas, that is Peter, we have an ex-fisherman, an uneducated and common man. In the twelve, that is the rest of the disciples minus Judas, the betrayer, we have three more ex-fishermen, a reformed tax collector, a former political zealot, and five other ordinary men who gave their lives to Jesus. All of them died. Most of them tortured and executed for declaring the truth about Jesus. 
which they received from Jesus, in whom they stood and by whom they were being saved through death to everlasting life. They held fast to the same word that has been preached to you this morning. And they didn't believe in vain. They believed to a unified purpose. To deliver the gospel as of first importance to all nations so that some are being saved even now. And I pray right now. We who believed, we who believe now, receive the gospel from them. In accordance with the scriptures, the New Testament, they lived filled by the Holy Spirit, loving God and loving his people according to the truth about Jesus that we too might be raised with him. Amen. Think now about the trouble at Corinth, the bonds of Jesus' love fractured by sin and separation within the fellowship, a church caught up in the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, listening to the big thinkers on the little hills of culture, minds occupied with things that are on earth instead of things that are above where Christ is seated in power at the right hand of God. The way they were living and loving revealed what was truly of first importance to them. Likewise, our way of living and loving reveals about us what really matters to us. Look at the cross. See the truth about Jesus as of first importance for every person of every age, always, everywhere, and in everything, in every moment of life. Let us all respond with heartfelt affection to the greatest expression of love. In all eternity, throughout the whole universe, the voluntary suffering and death of Jesus on his cross for us and heed the call of the risen king. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Trusting in that glorious promise that Jesus is with us always. Let us serve joyfully and work tirelessly, whatever the risk, for the love of Christ and the love of his people to the glory of God as of first importance. For Jesus' sake, 
Let's all praise him. Amen.